0: This is huge. I mean, we don't realize how this blurring boundary between the synchronous and the asynchronous collaboration is one of the defining elements of our evolution in our collective intelligence in 2024.
1: Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. In this podcast, we learn from amazing people how to think better and build better organizations in our massively accelerating world. We explore what's possible, how to augment ourselves, and ultimately, who we can become. In addition to the podcast, we apply the insights from our guests to develop useful tools and resources. These include the ThoughtWeaver app for better thinking with AI, the Humans Plus AI community with a wonderful group of explorers and extensive learning resources, my AI-enhanced thinking and decision-making cohort course, corporate programs, and a lot more. So to find out about these or to access a whole host of free resources, our newsletter, and uh, much more, just go to amplifyingcognition.com. And if you like the episode, please subscribe and rate the podcast. That will help others to find it. Now, to today's episode. In this episode, I talk with Gianni Giacomelli. Gianni is the founder of Supermind.Design and the head of design innovation at MIT's famed Center for Collective Intelligence. He previously has held leadership roles in many large organizations, most recently as Chief Innovation Officer at global professional services firm Genpact. He has written extensively for media and scientific journals and is a frequent conference speaker. Gianni and I talk in this episode about augmented collective intelligence, semantic spaces and how we can use AI to think more broadly, the incentives for sharing and value creation in networks, Designing superminds and far more. Keep posted for a fascinating episode with Gianni Diocomelli. Gianni, it's a delight to have you on the show.
0: It is fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So we have a shared passion for how AI can enhance our thinking. And yeah, there's many approaches, you know, you can have mindsets, you can have practices, you can have tools, you can have techniques. So just in the big frame, how should we go about thinking, well, we have this wonderful uh, generative AI. How do we start by making us, helping it helping us to think better?
0: I mean, it's a big question. It's probably one of the defining questions as we start recording this at the beginning of 24. I'm going to provide one uh, view, um, which may be one of the many views, but, but mine is a little bit uh to the work that uh, I've done over the years with uh, Tom Malone at MIT at the Center for Collective Intelligence. Uh, and it's the view of augmentation of collective intelligence. Uh, augmentation meaning not considering humans just as a crowdsourcing exercise or machines as a uh, set of technologies, but really the design, the organizational design of the combination and the synergy between the two. And that sounds obvious to a bunch of people being exposed to many tools in the recent past, et cetera. But when you start peeling the onion and looking into how you really make it happen, both at an individual level, but even more importantly at an organizational level, when you do processes that string together people, that is actually a lot less obvious. And I think the first, maybe the first answer to your question is we should actually try to step away and and try to look at the forest instead of just looking at the tree. And I think we got in, obviously, 2023, everybody got engrossed with uh, artificial intelligence, which in itself, uh, the generative AI kind, is an exercise in collective intelligence. I mean, those machines were trained on us, right? <laughs> they were trained on the things that the humans have been accumulating for me. But if you look at them in isolation, I think we don't get to where we want to get to. And obviously, a bunch of people talk about artificial um, general intelligence, AGI. I really like to talk about ACI, which is augmented collective intelligence, which is a state in which we will design practices, processes, tools that enable that synergy between large groups of humans and large groups of machines. Uh, There's a lot of design space there, and I think we're going to get to a place where we really can amplify our collective cognition by doing that job, right, doing that job, almost a process and organizational design using the technologies that we have now and the practices that, by the way, my MIT colleagues and others in the world, i mean, we have not been the ones, the, the only ones, we have a lot of those and I think we can bring them to bear in 24.
1: Uh, absolutely. And, you know, an organization hopefully is collectively intelligent. It's a bunch of people and you've got processes and communication to, to gather, uh hopefully be somewhat uh, collectively intelligent. But now we have these tools, which any of us within an organization can use. We can find ways to scale them and build them into processes. But to get to that collective intelligence, I think you know, a very significant starting point is, is the individual. How can an individual augment themselves in a particular role? So I'd love to come back to, you know, to I suppose, in a way end up, how do we create that collective intelligence? But starting with an individual uh, who's working, well, maybe an entrepreneur, or maybe working in an organization. They have, of course, access to generative AI in various guises. Uh, so what should they be doing to start to think better, act better, make better decisions?
0: I think it's a bunch of practical things, and then we can get into the tools and the practices, and you know, we'll get to that in a second. But I think the first thing that needs to be done is... is to change a little bit our frame of reference i think most of us especially in the west but i think even in the east um in the recent times have been almost trained and imprinted with this notion of we need to be smart our brain needs to be better Uh, and obviously we learn and we push ourselves and you know apply a bunch of techniques and all that kind of stuff but i think one of the things I have realized over the years, uh, you know, I, I did my share of, you know, big jobs. I've been a chief innovation officer in a large IT services company, et cetera. But the more you think about it, and obviously the work on collective intelligence helped me with this, is my brain, our brain is not what we just have in our skull. Yeah? And and it's actually what we have in our skull is, is, a, is a catalyst, is a is a point where a bunch of signals from the outside come and mingle. And if you think about the brain that way, then you think about the fact that in order to optimize the functioning and intelligence of the brain, you need to use all the ecosystem of things that exist around you. And we live in a time where we have access to information in a way that's unprecedented. That. I mean, you and I kind of the same age, I guess, and, you know, Imagine you remember when we were kids, right? I mean we at best we will go to the library. and that's that was the way of we had to augment our intelligence and then we go to school and then there's teachers and pupils and you know maybe we can work with each other and that, but now we have all this stuff around us. So I think the first point is really to think about your brain is not the 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 neural you know stuff that you have in your skull. The extended mind, the extended mind. I mean, it is not a philosophical concept is, you know, maybe we step into the practicality now, you have a bunch of steps to actually make yourself more intelligent the moment you stop thinking that your brain is yours, right? And so I've done a lot of work over the years on how to do that. But I think there are at least four steps that people should take. And they apply at an individual level, but also an organizational level, but we start with individual. The first one is, depending on what you do, um, you will have a specific take on the world. Right. So, unless you're, you know, the president of some uh, United States, etc., you know, typically your job is to do certain things, and so the first thing that needs to be done is to identify the nodes in your neural network. What are those nodes? Because a lot of the knowledge will come from them. And so, for example, I work in collective intelligence. I work a lot on uh, environmental sustainability and I work a lot on AI. So the first thing that one needs to do, and this sounds almost obvious because social media and all kinds of stuff, but most people don't do it deliberately. Who are the people out there that you should really be following. Podcasts, newsletters, Twitter feeds, X, whatever you want to call it, LinkedIn right? it's actually a bunch of stuff. And you need to be deliberate. It, the, uh, it's almost like a diet, you know, Although, of course, we eat every day. But, you know, most times we eat what we find, but that may, may not be a good thing. And, and I think having a, the right identification of notes, really spending time figuring out who the people are, who you should be listening to, and which ones instead are noise, right? That's the first step. Uh, And there's a lot of noise out there. And the other thing that I suggest when when we do this is try to go, obviously, for diversity. I mean, there there could be, a, uh, and I work in academia a lot, I mean, academics tend to be people who know a lot about very few things as their job. If you're like most people, you will want to have a diversity of perspectives. I mean, the, the obvious example is you know Steve Jobs, who you know used to know a bunch of things about computer science, but also marketing and design, and a bunch of the things that uh, in Oriental culture. so I mean, all kind of things have got together. And so if you want to really become smart, try to deliberately find notes, but also find notes that push you into different dimensions, spaces. Uh, yeah, I found it for myself. Um you know I, I work in software and consulting used to work at b c g at s a p et cetera and then I found at some point that there's this whole space of design um that has its own techniques and methods and and people, and that really completely opened my mind so that's the first thing to do identification notes.
1: just just to pause a second there so so part of it, so this, this echoes, what you're saying echoes very much, echoes what's in uh, Thriving on Overload. This idea of all right, find the, the right people and sources and information as inputs. You know, this is cognition. Cognition, human cognition, or any cognition is around, you got information going in, something happens, and then from that you have some you hopefully, hopefully you've useful actions. So can AI help us in the, what you've just described in identifying the nodes and in being able to ensure that those are sufficiently diverse. So are there specific techniques or approaches to do that?
0: Yeah. So so first of all, the short answer is a resounding yes. And we haven't seen anything yet, right? So what we can do today, you can ask machines. I mean, including, uh, I mean, a, a lot of AI has already been embedded in our Search mechanisms for some time. Right? I mean, if you if you search properly, if you know how to search properly, I know that you had Marshall Kirkpatrick, for example, on your pod uh, a while back. Yes, uh, you can actually find through simple algorithms um, people on Twitter, etc. You can you can really search. I mean, these days you can even go to perplexity.ai or or ChatGPT four, and you can have a conversation with ChatGPT. let's like an example, right? And say, hey, uh, I, I'm interested in the development of artificial intelligence, and I want to follow people who have a good and interesting point of view on how artificial intelligence augments uh, human resources. Right? Just a, you can have a conversation with perplexity.ai, AI, which by now has a copilot function as well, or ChatGPT, and ask who are the people out there. Uh, and it will know some of those people, and then you go into LinkedIn and you start looking at um, you know what they have tagged, etc. So um, you know, it, it's it's actually important that the machine helps you first break up the semantic space, break it into its subcomponents. You know, very often this is one of the techniques in design. It is so awesome. We think of a problem with our bounded cognition. But when you start peeling out the layers of the problem, you actually find that the problem has individual sub components, right? So for example, when you say AI for human resources, what does that mean? Well, it, it doesn't just mean think for payroll. It might be uh, engagement, customer, uh, employee engagement. It might be a skill taxonomies. It might be collaboration tools. And with a machine, you can actually break up the space. And then in those subspaces, you go and find the people, and that's already the first thing that the AI should do. So, I
1: just want to yeah, dig well. in a little, little bit into that. So, you've talked about this, uh, you know, mapping semantic spaces. I, I think that's a really fundamental thing in cognition. All right, you think? What, what are you thinking about? All right, so let's map that out. Let's find the elements to that. So, as you said, that's that's relevant in finding the people in the space is relevant in many other aspects of cognition. So can we just dig a little bit deeper into saying, all right, what what are, I mean, there's many approaches, but what are one or two approaches which people can just take to be able to start to map a semantic space?
0: So um, I think this falls under the umbrella of falling in love with the problem before falling in love with the solution, which is a very simple, fundamental concept in design. And most of us don't do it, right? We don't do it individually. We don't do it in groups. We like to run to, you know, we've been trained like that, right? I mean, teachers would look at us like, you know, how long do you take in defining the problem? Actually, you need to find problem. So how do you do that with, I mean, first of all, you can have a conversation with the machines. I think we we kind of forget because we haven't been trained in an apprentice Disciple model. I mean, I was born in Florence, Italy, right? I mean, I can, I sometimes go back and, and you actually bump into the places where Leonardo was trained, right? Um, and the guy went into the shop and then, uh, and then he talked to people. And, and you had the, um, you had Leonardo's uh, master would engage in a conversation with Leonardo and saying, what is light? I mean, Leonardo was one of the guys who actually figured out how to depict light in a very different way, and that's the reason why you had the Mona Lisa. I mean, if you look at the Mona Lisa, it's awesome because the light is used in a different way. But in those periods, in that time, it wasn't normal, right? And so what you do, you, you don't say, oh, art is art. I mean, I have all these things. I mean, and you go around in Florence, you can see it, you do some more. And you can say, no, no, let's decompose it. What, what is art? Obviously, the shapes, this motion that is reflected, this the colors in the techniques. And there's, a, and there's the light, right? At some point, that conversation must have happened between Leonardo and his master or the other disciples. And so use these machines as a conversation tool and actually follow and just basically ask them, what is in this, right? Break it down into individual subcomponents. That's the first thing to do. And they do a really good job at it. And one of the things about generated uh, AI is that it knows the semantic space, the latent semantic space into whatever you talk about. Then we don't, as humans, we kind of into it, but they do a really good job at doing it. And if you push them and say, well, this is not enough, they'll do and then you explode. And so I think that's the first thing to do. And they work really well at that thing. I don't know if you tried, but it it's actually it's actually fabulous and they do it in like an effortless manner, which which is a little disconcerting at times, but then as a human, you can say, well, then explode the first point and the third point and the fifth point and tell me what's in there. So it's like a nested doll. I mean, in the end, reality is like there's all these substructures that we typically are oblivious to because they're too much for our mind to take. But when you start the job of identifying nodes, boy, you want to go in and disassemble that that network structure, right? So I think that's the first that's a very simple thing that most people should be able to do, Ross.
1: Yes, absolutely. So going back, I have we've got kept off going on a couple of tangents. We so started there were four, I think, steps. We started off by looking at the nodes, and uh, I'm not sure diversity was the second one. So anyway, continue where I uh, interrupted.
0: Well, diversity was telling nodes. You said you know most okay. often you know people tend to study with their bounded things, but you know again you talk to the machine and say, well, what are the spaces that are adjacent to these ones? Right, you Now, that kind of things is really important. Um, one of the things that I and just to finish on this, and then we'll move to the second one is a lot of people have been. I mean, we always want to build being on the shoulders of giants, right? We never want to start from. I mean, this one of the ideas of collective intelligence, right? And so, one of the things that are super important is you know go into the node identification also with the lens of using. Concepts in theories from people. So, for example, managerial theories, I don't know, Christensen's disruption, right? That is one way to break down the space. So, um, a bunch of these theories, I mean, all theories, all scientific theories, including management theories, are one way of looking at the world and disassembling the world. It's like a lens, right? You have I don't know if you ever tried. Some people gave me uh, the other day. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, ultraviolet uh, uh, lamp that you can use. When well, you look at the world through an ultraviolet lamp. You actually see all sorts of different things. And managerial theory something like that lamp. I mean, you ask that very question. You know, AI, HR through the lens of disruption theory. It will give you. I mean, you can actually have that conversation with the machine. It will give you a bunch of perspectives that you didn't. Do you don't think you had. But I think that's a it's a really important uh, um, because mach- especially generative AI they will do a good job at the semantic space, but they still don't do a fantastic job at this symbolic space. I mean, they have some representation of the world, but not the entire one. But if you start pushing it and say, "Well, look at it through the perspective of I don't know blue ocean theory," it will actually disassemble the uh, the space, and then you're going to go and find people and nodes and all that kind of stuff. So. So let's finish that for a second. And that creates diversity. I think as a pretty.
1: Important. So so potentially, an individual may, depending on their role, may choose a set of different models or frames or lenses which can be most relevant to their work.
0: Precisely. I mean, models that you're familiar with, um, there's many of them. I mean, you just go and sort of, actually, you can ask the machine what are the models? It's interesting, the machines are optimized to optimize for their computing. And so they will give you what you know simple answers but if you ask them what are the models that I could apply to this thing they will tell you right? say you oh, know this 15 things and then you say okay well start with the first one tell me how you then see the problems with that and then you look at the people who are behind those things yeah so it's a such uh, I think that's a very simple thing to do uh, it's a fun thing to do uh, in, in itself is already insight so the second step is really and most people miss this um, to have really insightful conversations. you need to do something for those nodes. Obviously if you use a Google search or something you you're literally paying with your advertising dollars that you know sit in your click right? but for 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 more intentional and intelligent conversations well look at the relationship that you and I have. I think we met each other online you know you, you live in Australia, you live in Berlin, Germany I mean we've ever met? We work on a bunch of the same stuff. We kind of follow each other. I mean, for sure, I've been following your work for, for a long time and appreciate it. And then, and then I give feedback to you, you. You get feedback to me. You know, I refer you to people. It's important to always pay forward in these communities, in these networks. If you really want to have a conversation with people as opposed to just scraping, you know, scraping is fine. By the way, for most people, maybe it's sufficient. But if you want to go deeper, you need to do something for the nodes out there. And what I try to do, and what you try to do, I mean, it's a very good example. You publish a lot, right? You know, I mean, it takes you time to do what you do. I right? mean, it takes you time to do what you're doing now. It takes you time to put out the um, the insights that you put out on social media. And that's a way of paying forward, then people will pay back in for, in the form of yeah, I want to talk to you. Yeah, I can have a conversation with you. So the first, the second pillar is really how to set up incentives so that the network fires. I mean, it, the equivalent in our brain is hormones, right? Uh, boy, your brain would be very happy to sleep all day, but it has some powerful things like, uh, you know, oxytocins and, uh, um, you know, adrenaline, etc. And boy, it fires when, when it sees those things. And so the equivalent in networks is incentives. And, and there can be norms, there can be culture, there can be a bunch of things. And at an individual level is do something for the next person or for a bunch of people. Somebody some, sometimes said, if you cannot code, at least you should be able to write. Uh, and, and I think it's a very good uh, thing to do. And you know, many of us do that and you know, obviously we get something to earn. So that was the
1: second. Taking a very quick break. This podcast is just one facet of our work to amplify human cognition. If you're interested in thinking better in a world of overload, using AI to augment yourself, finding like-minded thinkers, or improving your organization's performance, just go to amplifyingcognition.com. You'll find a wealth of free resources and useful tools. Now, back to the show. So the, I mean, one thing which, which I mean, it was fairly obvious again is sort of the alignment of our ideas is that uh, you know what you're describing for me is the living networks again, sort of echoing uh, my ideas. It's uh, the nodes. How do you bring them to life Well, you create value for others? You make connections uh, out of that. Good things happen. You participate in this, you know, higher order organism. And so, yeah, you know, and, and uh, part of the that frame now is that it's not just. Humans in that network. There's also AI in uh, in the, inst- the interstitial uh, place of AI, but also AI as nodes as well.
0: Totally. And so, look, I mean, incentives can also be you pay your 20 bucks a month to open AI, right? I mean, you give them incentives, and they give you something back. There's, there's all sorts of levels, right? You can be for free, and then you get some stuff, you know, sometimes good, sometimes you know, empty calories, and then you go up, and you pay for services, and then you go up, and you pay for you know, your time that you put into having something really unique or new, novel, and share it with others and engage with others, in session, that will give you an increasing amount of interaction with the network. And you, you really get deeper and deeper into new things. Maybe for some people, it's enough to stay at level one. And maybe for other people like you and I, we need to go all the way to level three because we try to, to discover new things, you know, to go where we don't think that people have been before. So that was the second... Uh, the third one the third one is all these networks have an inclination to become a little insular um one the work for example that has been done around uh, which I find super fascinating around uh, uh, a guy called carl friston um free energy principle and the uh, uh the concept of active inference I mean we are built to Survive. I and mean, this is the first thing that we want to do. And to survive, we have this balance between doing and resting. Right? Because you know, the more you do, the more you use energy, and the more you rest, the more you don't get energy. So, but you use less energy. So, what do you do? And so, the 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 feeding. The, you know, you need to forage yourself. You need to go out and forage yourself. Um, and so that's the that's the concept of build information feeders into those networks because those networks are quite happy to stay uh, in their little bubble and there's less cognitive dissonance and everybody kind of agrees with each other etc but then obviously they they ossify Um, but obviously going out and looking for new information is expensive expensive in terms of cognitive resources sometimes it it, it jars you, right? Because you find people you don't necessarily like the opinion of. And but you need to build that stuff. I, again, um, Marshall, you had him on the pod, through X, uh, I mean, all time Twitter, you get all sorts of feeds, actually stuff that you wouldn't want to see. If you go and look for it, it you'll find it. Um, and we've been using Feedly for the longest time. We obviously have all our Good pods and good newsletters, etc. So it's not just enough to find the nodes. It's also you need to, you know, put, put your their fire hose into your, uh, you know, backyard. Otherwise, you don't get anything out of it. Increasingly, I think we will get a good uh, help from uh, artificial intelligence. One of the things that I really, really long for, uh, and I think they will, it will it will happen. I mean, one of the things I think is going to be. Let's give it a good chance. In 24, it will happen. Something that summarizes the the firehose. You know, we we all work in spaces where we have a ton of stuff. And you, I'm sure you read like the so You 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 you're, you're subscribing to more newsletters and podcasts, etc. That you can consume. And so the objective there is: can we have a machine summarize what comes from those feeds so that you can consume it better? I, I don't believe actually that the machine will do a, a fantastic job of summarizing the really juicy things because it tends to be, I mean, unless it is trained in a certain way, and by the way, this work in that direction. But I, I very often find the AI based summaries a little, you know, bland kind of thing. But what they're good at is to give you almost the equivalent of a table of content so that you as a human can decide, oh well, you know, the third point and the seventh point are really interesting. I want to go and see. Uh, and that makes you a lot more efficient in your consumption of knowledge. That's a huge point. I mean, we you can find the nodes and you can pay forward and do all the stuff. But then you have a fire hose and you can't really do all that matches. Everybody has a job and how much time. And so summarization is going to be important. You can already use machines to point you at the right subcomponents of the corpus. And then you need to do the job that humans do, which is you go in and you find the connections, uh, at at least for now. So that, I think, is the the third element. And, you know, retrieval augmented generation will do a good job in the future. I think increasingly does. Um, But but I still feel that for some time we will need to have humans going in and connecting not just the semantic dots, but really the symbolic dots, really the connection between analogies that machines wouldn't find. So that's the third pillar
1: yeah absolutely and so so this goes to where I sometimes get a little frustrated because there's a lot of saying okay how do we get the best information but the information has value when we as you suggest make it part of our own understanding our own knowledge our own comprehension and so i frame this as as knowledge creation these are the mental models or the frameworks we have in our mind and, you know, we've got new information, we can integrate it, we can assimilate it, we can improve our mental models as the, on the basis of the information we get. So I am fascinated by how it is we can use AI to build better mental models or to, you know, I mean, partly through making our own mental models more visible to allow that new information to to essentially mean we we understand better. We're able to make better decisions. We have a better understanding, not just presented with better quality information.
0: Let's double click, click on that because I think that's a fundamental thing. I mean, it was one of those things that make us smarter or not, right? So there's a big fork in the road. I think part of the answer there is we still need to work hard at it. Uh, I think the, also in the work that I've, I've done uh, at MIT in other places, you realize pretty quickly how there could be a dependency that humans form around the machines. And we just click and we hope that uh, the thing will just be broken down for you in a perfect set of pieces and then you need to do the minimum amount of it. I don't think that that's, first of all, I don't think that's right in general. Uh, and because it, it will make us complacent and you know too you know lazy. and then. But also, it doesn't do the job today. I mean, to your point, let's go back to an early point that we made. I can talk to a machine and if I ask the machine, so GPT-4, to break down a space, I'll need to engage with the machine for the machine to break down the space, right? So for example, AI and human resources, just break it down and then tell me who's been writing about this, you know, tell me who I should follow, all, all that kind of things. You need to engage with the machine to get that done, right? Um, and the second part is your decision as a human to decide which lenses you want to apply, right? So, I don't know, you, you may be familiar with the concept that is called Ikigai. Right? It's a Japanese concept about meaning of life and, and really interesting from as a career guidance standpoint. The machine wouldn't... I mean, you tell you that the thing is there, maybe relevant, but it's your decision as a human to decide that that thing, which is, again, here basically it says, you need to find your space where you work at the intersection of your knowledge, your passion and what the world needs, because in the end, either you get paid for it or it's some way intrinsically or extrinsically.? Right? It's, it's a lot of work. And that concept of guy the machine was what it is, but it doesn't take that decision for you, And you should take that decision. you as a human, as a team, as an organization. You you are in charge of deciding which models, which mental models. The machine can actually tell you which mental models exist, but it's your job to decide which ones to use. So fourth point. So fourth point is is the collaboration element. So if you think about, I mean, this is but the, the work that we've done over the years at the MIT. It's, it, this was intended to be a. a a cross-disciplinary group between organizational management science, but also neuroscience and computer science, right? So if you think about all the things we just talked about, it's like you know, very often is how at some level the, the brain works. So the fourth aspect is collaboration. So once you have the nodes, you're given the incentives, you have all the speeders, you need to engage with this thing. And <clears throat> I think the easiest example we sit at the beginning of 2024, everybody talks about mixtures of experts in AI, right? So mixtures of experts is basically having different agents with different characteristics engage with each other. And those are different models. And, instead, and, and the objective is how do we get to a, that you know, AGI at some point? How do we make this machine smarter? One of the things that people are saying now is, especially based on the success of GPT-4, right? GPT-4 is a, in itself is a combination of models, it's not like a GPT three plus plus plus. It's actually a, a bunch of compu- a bunch of those models combined and interacting and collaborating with each other. So if you see how even the artificial intelligence people are trying to solve the problem, it's not just to have more data and and more parameters. It's actually, well, let's take eight models and let's ar- orchestrate an architecture of collaboration between them, so you can get them to dialogue, have a dialectic, etc. So that is a super important concept. And we built a couple of things like I'll tell you about in a second. That's foundation, right? So and you need to have collaboration infrastructures that are built for that. So if you're in a company, um, people often talk about, well, I have Teams or I have Slack or I have something like that, what well, is the ROI of that stuff? Now, for a bunch of people, it is well, I don't know what is the ROI of a telephone, right? Um, and I was having conversations the other day with with folks with what has been the ROI of uh, cellular phones. And then there's a lot of studies that show that in Africa, you know, without cellular phones, you know, the agriculture would be much worse, and because you know the farmers now can connect, etc. But it's interesting that in the West, we or in developed economies, very often take that stuff for granted, and then it was, oh, well, you know, the CIO will implement some collaboration technology that isn't the right way to think about it so first of all is the tools but also the change management related to the tools and getting people to adopt them which also means for example that you know if you're an individual person an individual professional in a company suppose that you lead a team or you're the leader of an organization you need to lead by example in terms of usage of those tools you know don't wait for your teams to use it Get into the, I've seen it and I've done it many times in my career because obviously that was part of my job as an innovation officer to create systems that then innovate by themselves, even when I'm sleeping, right? And and the way you do it, you see sometimes business leaders, uh, PL owners, you know, those, those kind of people in, te- in theory, they're not the CIO. They say, well, you know, give me the tools. But instead, what they would do, they would get into those channels and say, don't call me. I'm not going to answer the phone. Come here and write your question here. I'm going to give you an answer here. So one, everybody sees the answer and the question. And two, everybody knows that next time you have that kind of conversation, you don't keep it into a dark hole between you and me. And then once we're off the phone, nobody will ever know that we had that conversation. So that element of change management, right on top of choosing the right collaboration tools, but also getting them implemented is vital the ROI of that thing. And again, the, the organizations that do that well exhibit a higher level of collective intelligence than the others, where the silos, there's cliques, there's people talking behind the curtains, and you don't quite know what's going on. So the, the, the fourth aspect is really this collaboration element. And again, AI, if it works at advertised, I think we'll get a lot out of that um, because AI increasingly already, I mean, some It's one of the basic things. It transcribes video calls and it gives you the summaries of these video calls, or at least it tells you what you talked about. And then on that basis, people who haven't been in the calls can decide, oh, you know, this is interesting. Two minutes have caught up or "No, no, no, I want to go in and listen to that thing. This is huge. I mean, we don't realize how this is a... This blurring boundary between the synchronous and the asynchronous collaboration is one of the defining elements of our evolution in our collective intelligence in 2024. People never fully realized that we had a time in which synchronous collaboration was pretty much invisible to pretty much everybody who wasn't in that room. And now that's not the case anymore but also asynchronous collaboration i mean i don't know if you tried Chun gpt with the uh, voice interface i mean increasingly you are going to be able to build agents that you can query in real time during a meeting and say tell me what you know about what that team has done what you know i mean marketing what did the finance team say last time we did this kind of promotion And the machine will actually tell you in real time, well, this is all the stuff that we've seen in the last two years. And these are the cases where they gave us funding or they didn't give us funding, so the parameters. And that's all asynchronous knowledge that can be made synchronous when humans collaborate in synchronous in real time. To me, that is one of the things that I'm most engrossed about because I think it will fundamentally change how our collective brain works. I mean, really, literally, space-time compression. All, all the knowledge searchable queryable and you can collaborate with a corpus um I don't know if you ever read the EN bags right the work of ian Baggs. So you have all these agents to basically learn and then and then you interact
1: the no I love love that uh the, that as you point out sort of the merging of the synchronous and asynchronous is changing the you know, absolutely transforming collective intelligence certainly potential and also organizations you know and I think that that's if you're a leader, being able to design. So I, I was early COVID. I was ran quite a few workshops with uh, leaders of large organisations, and you know, bringing to their attention the distinction between synchronous and asynchronous, which was not always evident to them. Um, but yeah, as you say, now these start to merge. That changes the nature of what an organisation can be. So, so I think we'll probably, uh, in due course, have to do a follow up episode since we're only just, just beginning really to dig into this stuff but just to come back to the beginning collective intelligence and so you know we can think of multi-agent uh, as in this idea of human agents and AI agents and how those can come together but also this nature of how AI can facilitate collective intelligence be that in an organization or potentially be beyond organizational boundaries so so, a, I mean, I suppose just to, just to wrap this up, I suppose, what are, what are some of the most teasing, tantalizing aspects today of uh, of where we can go with this?
0: It's a really good question because there's a lot that will happen that we don't know of already. Uh, so one of the things I would say, just stay tuned to what's happening because you and I don't. You know, there's wild cards, right? I mean, Apple is coming up with their... You know, goggle type stuff. You know, what is that going to do? You know, that that's multimodal. That brings that also is a you know collapsing of space. For example, right? You have all these layers, and now you can at least two things. I would say make me feel like we are on the verge of a real inflection. One is what you said before: the work that you do with organizations. I think is hugely important. Most of us, you know, think of this and and obviously this is a podcast, so it doesn't represent well, but, you know, think of this as a two dimensional space. On one axis, you have number of people, you know, zero people, one person, many, many people. The other axis, you have number of machines, zero machine, one machine, multiple machines. We've been mostly designing in the space of one person, one machine, you know, GPD three with one person. There's a ton of design space in the many people, many machines kind of space. Um, what the work that we did with uh, the MIT ideator for example, which was uh, a tool to help people think through almost like a design thinking facilitator in a box, if you will, it was one person one machine. But increasingly, for example, you could say you could build things like that where you don't have only one machine you have almost the analogous of multiple personas, and you say to the personas, you know, I want to do something to HR through artificial intelligence. And then you take multiple personas. You take the persona of the CHRO, you take the persona of the head of hiring, you take the persona of the uh, business partner who's the interface with the, uh, with the business. Then you take the persona of the entry level employee or take the persona of you know the senior employee and you make all those personas, participants. In a virtual workshop. So there's multiple machines, maybe one human, and then you do a design workshop like that. But then you take a bunch of humans and then you do a design workshop like that with multiple personas and then multiple people. I think there's a ton of design space there. And the interesting thing is is design space is not technology R&D space anymore because the tools that we have, maybe I don't know if we have show notes here, but we may actually add a couple of links, especially with the GPT's, right, you know, the release of GPT's that was done. And I think the uh, the marketplace for GPT's is, is coming this week. Next, I don't remember. Um, a lot of people will be able to do a lot of the things that we just talked about. right? So that's the, I think that's the lower hanging fruit. I think we'll see that playing out in the next two, three months. And I think there's even a bigger picture that we can talk about. But uh, maybe we can talk about it uh, at a separate time. I, I still think that there's some something really fundamentally ha- happening here in which if you build an ecosystem of the things that we talked about for individual augmentation suppose you have somebody that, I don't know, like Gates case foundation, right? I'm just making an example. Building what is called a supermind, all of the things that we just talked about at MIT are called superminds. Building a supermind that basically does the four things that we talked about, right? Identify the nodes, give incentives to the nodes, feeding the ecosystem, and then create a collaboration environment. And do it at a at a at a level that is much bigger than the individual person but you know putting enough resources there and computational resources so that the so that the machines autonomously look for nodes autonomously look for you know feeding the right people in the networks or finding and feeding information in a way that is not just based on advertising empty calories right and then enabling you know say a machine knocking on Ross's door and say, Ross, you should talk to Jani because he's been writing some stuff that is related to the stuff that you've been writing. Can you imagine if we did that? At, again, I was talking about the Gates Foundation because they're trying to solve very complicated problems, complex problems. Can we build machines and architectures that do that autonomously for each of the spaces that we really need to have important solutions? You know, this bunch of sustainability environments and I think that that, Ross, doesn't feel like is five years ahead anymore, right? When I started working in the space, it yeah. felt like we needed to have a very different uh, technology paradigm. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think it's more of an organizational design, uh, putting the processes in the right place and, and doing the change. You.
1: Absolutely. You know, if you, As you say, everything you've described, I mean, there's some, and there's some pretty wild and wacky stuff. <laughs> that we've talked about uh, on this stuff, if you really, if you really think about it. But as you say, this is all possible. I mean, there's it's, a lot of it's uh, you know the underlying tools of the generative AI, and part of it is now just sort of a process or interface or organizational design, and that is um, all there for the taking, as it were. So yes, as you suggest, 2024 and beyond is going to be pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So, Jenny, where can people go to find more about your work?
0: Super easy. uh, Supermind.design is where I try to to work out in the open. Um, And obviously on LinkedIn, uh, there's there's a bunch of stuff that I try to put out there. Uh, I used to do a lot more more of uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm a little less keen on that these days. Maybe it's just me being a little despondent. But again, LinkedIn and Supermind.design. And I really encourage people. I mean, obviously, the work that we do is important that people show up and say, I didn't like what you said, or I think you missed a piece, etc. So I, I really encourage people to uh, reach out.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Jeremy.
0: It was awesome. Thank you for the work you do, uh, Ross.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. If you want to dive deeper, access free downloads in our newsletter and discover useful tools, go to amplifyingcognition.com. Did you enjoy this episode? Please support us. By taking 30 seconds to give us a rating or a one sentence review thank you for your support thank you for listening and have a wonderful day